I want to remind you, if you haven't been with us, we're here last week, and we were blessed to have Connie Randall preach for us, start us off on our Lenten series. And we are taking this time through Lent to journey towards Easter and discover who Jesus is again. We're using the pages of John's Gospel to wrestle with the ultimate question that Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? And this morning, as you're turning to John 6, we are going to stop and listen in on the aftermath of one of Jesus' most famous miracles. This sign of the kingdom is so memorable, so noteworthy, that it bears the distinction of being the only one of Jesus' amazing works that is quoted in all four Gospels. With only a couple of loaves and a few fish, Jesus feeds around 10,000 people. Our text says 5,000, but remember, that's men alone. You factor in women and children, that's where many scholars believe it was more like 10,000. The gathered crowd is so taken with this meal that we read that they're ready to take Jesus by force and make him their king. The crowds that are following Jesus in John's Gospel are convinced that they know who Jesus is. Even when Jesus rejects their attempts at coronation, even when Jesus withdraws from them, they do not let go of the picture that they have in their minds. If you're familiar at all with this account, his followers, Jesus' followers, pursue him across the Sea of Galilee, believing that they've seen enough of Jesus to know that whatever he had, they wanted more of it. As we dig into John's Gospel this morning, we're going to listen in as Jesus dramatically reorients their picture of his identity and destiny. And if we pay close attention to what is said here, it's likely that some of our own preconceived notions about Jesus will be shattered as well. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, starting with verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You were looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food which spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, 
Jesus answered, No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you, what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you were going to start a rebellion, an uprising against Rome, the best place to ignite the spark of revolution was in Galilee. Time and time again, Galilee had proven to be a consistent pocket of insurgency against the Roman Empire. Frustration and resentment against Roman occupation ran high in those northern hills. Many of the repeated terrorist attacks against Rome by zealots were planned and executed in Galilee. And it's against this backdrop, the shores of Galilee, that Jesus' miracle is, isn't just perceived as some kind of supernatural church potluck. The gathered crowds recognize that Jesus, what he does in their backyard, is a sign, a political sign, a green light for revolution against Rome to begin. This is the reason why the crowds are so persistent in tracking Jesus down. And this is also the reason why Jesus gives this extended speech here when they finally find him. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now let's be clear here. Jesus isn't talking about literal food. Keep in mind, of all the questions that the crowds ask Jesus, the one they don't ask is, how do we get more bread? And think about it. If the people wanted a free lunch, a second helping of bread and fish, there were probably easier ways for them to get it than following Jesus across the lake. Let's also remember that it was from a small boy's lunchbox that Jesus left behind enough leftovers to fill 12 baskets. No, their intentions are made clear enough after Jesus reveals what, is, what it is in, is in their hearts, what they're really after. We want to perform God's works too, they respond. The works of God that they have in mind are the works of liberation, the works of exodus. After all, 
If Moses was able to deliver their ancestors out of slavery in Egypt, to take them through the wilderness and keep them alive with bread, then this Jesus could be the Messiah, the one to at last set Israel free from Roman oppression. They wanted to see the Roman Empire humbled the way the Egyptian Empire was. They wanted justice. They wanted to be set free. They wanted to go back to the glory days, the good life, when tax rates were low and the economy was booming, when the nations of the world served them and not the other way around. They wanted to start rebuilding the kingdom of their forefathers. Hadn't this been what God had promised? Isn't this what they had been waiting for all this time? I don't know if we notice it, but there are some disturbing parallels here to Jesus' encounter with Satan in the wilderness. When Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, the devil made an appeal for a similar outcome. You recall that Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth without going through the crucifixion. All of this, all of this can be yours, the devil promised. Just give me what I want and no one gets hurt. Satan also tempted Jesus in that same time in regards to bread, beckoning Jesus in his hunger to show his power, to prove himself by turning the stones into bread. I don't think it's a coincidence, beloved, that one of the questions that the crowd asks Jesus here is almost identical to the same request that the devil makes. What will you do for us? They ask Jesus. Show us a sign. Give us bread like Moses did. I bring this up because we ought not to gloss over these parallels. After all, how does temptation work? How does the enemy get a foothold in our lives? By appealing to our natural appetites. By working through our instinctive desires and manipulating them until they overtake us. Notice that the instincts of the crowd were right. Jesus did come as a king. Jesus repeatedly spoke about establishing a kingdom. Jesus engaged the realities of political freedom and economic justice. Jesus had much to say about the poor and the oppressed, but where the crowds got it wrong is that Jesus' answers to those problems, the kind of king that he came to be, the way in which he intended to rule, the dynamics of the kingdom he came to establish, were not going to be defined or determined by earthly or human standards. And so Jesus refused to give in to the aspirations of a Galilean mob in much the same way that he refused Satan's offer of power as a route to the kingdom. Beloved, how easy it is in the pursuit of satisfying our hungers that we can take the good things of God, the true food that God wants to offer us, and turn it into, in our parlance, junk food. What is the difference between junk food and good food? What's the difference between junk food and good food? Junk food satisfies our hunger temporarily, but it does not make us healthy. In fact, junk food damages our health. And here's the thing. Contrary to what we often think, junk food can be anything in our life. Anything in our life can become junk food. Bananas. Bananas are good, and they're good for you. But if I told you that I ate nothing but bananas you might start to worry. Because if I ate nothing but bananas, I would in time become malnourished. I would in time become depleted. I would in time become severely bound up. <laughs> junk food, junk food isn't about 
It's not just about what's bad for you. Junk food is a wrong approach to what's good for you as well. Beloved, when we take the things that God offers us as a means of our own, as a means of sustaining our faith, and we take the things that God gives us, the good things, and mistake them as the basis of our faith, when we get fixated on the signs that God gives us, rather than staying focused on what those signs point to, we are turning those good gifts that are meant to draw us closer to God into idols that eclipse or replace God's presence in our life. Our history is replete with that snare of taking the good things of God and making them into idols in our life. And that's why Jesus tells the crowd, speaking beyond them to us, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. As the people correctly look back and remember Moses, Jesus is telling them that they are focusing on the wrong thing. The lesson of the manna in the wilderness was to understand that Yahweh would always give them what they needed. It was about recognizing that the hunger that we all have within us is a hunger that only God can satisfy. The bread of God is that which comes down from heaven, Jesus says, and it gives life to the world. Beloved, generations later, the chasers of Jesus remembered the manna, but they did not remember the lesson of the manna. These were hungry people. We can, it almost comes off the page, doesn't it? They're hungry people, hungry for things they could not even realize yet, hungry for something deeper than manna could fill. Collectively, they sensed that there was something about this man, something about this Jesus that they needed. So they made the journey across the lake to find him. They engaged him in conversation, not even knowing what they were asking for, and yet still compelled to want something from him. They recognized the sign, but couldn't figure out what it pointed to, who it pointed to. Centuries later after this incident, as a community... We as a community who have been formed and bound together in the breaking of bread and the sharing of the cup, are we any less forgetful? Do we not share the same tendency to miss the point? This encounter in John serves as a mirror to our own restlessness and ignorance when it comes to Jesus. And if we dare to glance at our own reflection, we will realize that we too are a people that are still chasing after the bread that perishes. Ours is a world obsessed with the fulfillment of desire. We are a people who are always looking for more in our lives, to have more, to experience more, to be more. Culturally, those who fail to be continuously driven, who dare to be satisfied, are often labeled unambitious or even lazy. And yet, in our quest to suck the marrow out of life, in our piling up of our possessions, our experiences, our trophies, we fall victim again and again to the trap of our own making. We become, all of us, in different ways, but it's the same disease, we become addicted to materialism. Our mantra, as it was eloquently pointed out in James Bryan Smith's book, The Good and Beautiful Life, which we just studied, our mantra becomes just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That's all we need is just a little bit more. 
And as we keep saying that just a little bit more, we unconsciously succumb to the descending spiral of acquisition, of acquisitive expectation. We believe the lie. Even if we don't acknowledge it, we internalize the lie that we can buy, we can create, we can achieve our own happiness. Just a little bit more. And then we'll have it. Just a little bit more. And yet, as we just keep saying that over and over again, thinking it, internalizing it, that aching hole inside of us gets bigger and bigger. That longing within us gets deeper and wider, even as our personal inventory increases. Even as that hole gets bigger, even as we can sense its presence, all of that personal inventory, all of our stuff, all of our experiences crowd and jam up our lives so much that our deepest needs, real satisfaction, real contentment, real security, real love remain inaccessible to us. That's the trap. That's the paradox. Before we know it, it isn't our stuff that defines us. It's we who are defined by our stuff. Think about it. You would think in a culture like ours, just in, in this country alone, you would think in a culture as ours that is marked on the whole that we, we would be marked as the whole as more satisfied than most, since in terms of things in this country, we have more than most. All of you in this room, I don't care where you are economically, all of you are rich compared to the majority of people in the rest of the world. We have more than most, and so you would think, being the people that we are having so much at our fingertips, that we would be more satisfied than most. And yet, despite all that we have, all that we, we, all that we possess, our hunger persists. The more we have, the hungrier we become and the less satisfied we are. We say just a little bit more, but the truth is we can never get enough. That's why these Galileans tracked down Jesus. They had it too. They couldn't be satisfied with yesterday's meal. They wanted another happy meal. They wanted another quick fix, a Messiah who could bring the magic, who could tell them what they wanted to hear, who could promise them change without cost, who could deliver a free lunch. Beloved, in a world that is starving, even as there is an abundance of food on the table, we are no different. As a people who are willing to stuff ourselves with all kinds of junk, that never satisfies our hunger, that never slakes our thirst, we are just as desperate. And I want to say to you that if you've come here this morning and you can relate to what I'm saying, if you can relate to what Jesus is saying through these words, if you come here this morning and you are hungry, if you're exhausted from spending all your effort and energy seeking to satisfy that hunger with all sorts of food, if you're here this morning and you're a consumer who's had it all, seen it all, but you still feel like you're starving to death, listen to the words of Jesus. Heed his invitation to you this morning. For into that void, into that empty space, that vacuum, that deep hunger within, Jesus speaks a remarkable and a cryptic statement. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Bread. Bread is a staple of our human life. It is literally the food of humanity. There is no culture in history that does not have some form of bread in its diet. 
From the person who goes to the store to buy his bread to the one who lives off the land and cooks his daily ration of bread on a stone beside his fire, people everywhere consume bread. Bread is the staff of life. It's one of the the few foods that can be tolerated by most digestive systems. While some like meat and others don't, and some like greens and others don't, most people like bread. Truth is, most people like bread too much. (laughs) Bread is food for the journey. It's nourishment. There's something about bread. It's home. Any way you slice it, bread has a satisfying quality that other foods just don't have. I am the bread of life. In describing himself as a staple of our existence, Jesus is making a powerful claim. Jesus doesn't relate to our deepest longing, our greatest hunger. Jesus claims to meet, to satisfy our every longing and hunger. Whoever believes in me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What exactly is Jesus offering us? Jesus is promising to satisfy the deepest longings of this life. Security, salvation, peace. If we're searching, if we're yearning for faith that will help us face each day. For the kind of hope that will help us to look towards tomorrow. For the kind of love that will carry us through it all. Jesus says, look no further. Look no further. And at first, when Jesus announces, I am the bread of life, at first, it would seem as though he has the crowds eating out of his hand. As with one voice, they respond, always give us this bread. But they still don't get it. They still don't get it when Jesus repeats, I am the bread of life. The literal translation of this in Greek would be, I, I'm the one, I myself am the bread of life. For those who are listening, Jesus' emphatic words here are a clue A hearkening back to someone greater than Moses, to the God who worked through Moses. At the start of the Exodus journey, we'll recall, as Moses is standing in front of a burning bush, he asks the God who has called him back to Egypt, if I go down and tell the people who've said, and tell the people, I'm in charge now, who should I say you are? What's your name? And God responds, I am who I am. I am myself. When Jesus declares, I am the bread of life, in essence, he is saying, I am God. I am the one you are looking for. And Jesus underscores this point by, with all this talk of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Now, contrary to what we initially think, he's not promoting cannibalism, which was often a critique of, of, of Rome against the early church, that we were cannibals. What Jesus is saying here in speaking of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, as we now know on the other side of the story, is he's looking ahead to how he will make good on the promises that he makes here through his death and resurrection. Jesus is backing up his claim, not just with words, but with actions. If we are hungering for wisdom and discernment, Jesus is saying, feast on me. If we are looking for strength in the face of temptation or forgiveness in the aftermath of failure, Jesus is inviting us to come to the table. Jesus is telling us, I am what you need to survive. I am what you need to be filled up. I am the real food in life. I am the most important food in life. I am the food that is going to last. But for a crowd that's looking for a revolution, this kind of revelation is bread that's just too hard to swallow. Even some of Jesus' own disciples can't stomach it. Why? 
Where's the disconnect? Why do so many people walk away from Jesus' offer here? How does this speak into our own misconceptions about who Jesus is? Beloved, what we see here, which is perhaps a reflection of our own lives, is that the crowds were looking for a snack. The crowds were looking for a snack, for something to tide them over so they could get on with their lives. The people were coming to Jesus because they were interested in another meal, something they could draw some sustenance from in order to strengthen their own agenda. They came to Jesus looking for a boost, a quick fix. Notice their primary question to Jesus is, what must we do? The people wanted to get their order of bread to go. They wanted to know what works they had to do. But Jesus closes the drive through window and says there's nothing for you to do except believe, except trust, except to rely on me. Jesus isn't offering them a one-time spiritual event, a single meal. Beloved, Jesus isn't inviting us when we are hungry to reach for him first. Jesus isn't offering himself to us as a snack or a meal. Jesus is beckoning us to change our diet, to rethink what we rely on to sustain and satisfy us. He's offering us a lifelong feeding program for the rest of our lives. We don't come to this table week in and week out just to get a shot of grape juice and a piece of bread so we can feel better about ourselves. Jesus isn't a quick fix. Jesus isn't a happy meal. Jesus isn't something you try to get results. Jesus isn't about the temporary high of forgiveness or the buzz of eternal life. Jesus is a person you encounter. Jesus offers us lifelong nourishment through a relationship that sustains us, that helps us to grow into the creatures that God always intended for us to be. Beloved, it's more than a meal. It's about changing our diet. The man in the wilderness wasn't just about the bread. It was learning not to hoard their bread. Do you remember? If they hoarded their bread, if they tried to collect it for more than a day, it would rot and smell. It was about learning to share with those who could not gather bread for themselves. The bread of Moses was a means for the people to learn how to trust God and become the people they were called to be. The bread of life, this food called Jesus, doesn't teach us how to eat better. Jesus literally transforms our eating habits. And so what is the evidence? What is the evidence of a changed diet in the Christian life? When we are truly feasting on Jesus, living on him and him alone, we realize we can only be filled full. We can only be filled full when we empty ourselves. When we are truly feasting on Jesus, living on him and him alone, we no longer spend our money and our time and our energy on junk food and happy meals. Not alcohol, not drugs, not money, not power, not cars, houses, clothes, job titles, popularity, recognition, empty relationships, controlling others, more experiences, more stuff. We're done with it. It all becomes bland and tasteless food apart from Jesus. When we are living, feeding off of Jesus Christ as our diet, we crave 
And we can only find sustenance where Jesus is. And if you're someone sitting here today who doesn't have that taste, then you're eating junk food. Then you have turned the things of God into junk food. If you are sitting here and you still feel that hunger and yet you are trying to fill that hole with all that laundry list and a host of other things that I can mention, you have not heard Jesus' invitation that he is the bread of life. Because if you have heard that invitation and if Jesus is your regular diet, you will find that you will only crave and can only find sustenance where Jesus is. For the crowd, the, the, the thing that they missed was that the revolution comes from embracing the revelation. The world is changed not by what we do, but by feasting on what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing. In other words, beloved, the faith that we receive from Jesus cannot be separated from the lifelong consequences of that faith in Jesus. What is the diet of the church? Where is the church healthy? Where acts of justice and mercy abound. Where words of forgiveness and grace are in plentiful supply, where prayers of love and hope are what we put before the table. These are the food groups of the Christian diet. We remember to take and eat the bread of life of Jesus so that we can proclaim, Paul tells us, so that we can be broken and poured out as the body of Christ for the world. We've all been watching the news, and I wasn't here last week, and I know I requested this be put in here. Have you responded to this? To this tragedy in Japan? Or are we indifferent because we've just seen so many of these in the last couple of years? I'm shocked at the number of people. Have you read the newspaper reports about how the response to this, because it's Japan, has been less? Because our perception is, you know, they have enough. They don't need it. Does anyone in this room believe that Jesus would say amen to that? Does anyone in this room think that Jesus would say, you know what? Yes, Haiti, Japan, they're well enough on their own. Or as some would say, well, they believe in Buddha anyway, so they're just getting what's coming to them. Oh, and, and we have our share of Christians who are saying that. If we're feeding on Jesus, we have to take a look in the mirror and ask, are we feasting on Christ? And if we're feasting, are we becoming the bread of life that Jesus calls us as his body to be? It's global and it's local. I see the slide is still up there. I'm not sure the condition of our food pantry and I know that it, it, it empties quickly, but I can tell you that if you're not bringing donations for our food pantry, stop at the grocery store, pick up a couple extra things. That food pantry is feeding mouths here in our community and an orphanage in Mexico where the economy is affecting them there too and Lutheran social services. Have you brought a bag of food? And this isn't a guilt trip. It's just simply how easy it is for us to just gloss over living out of this feasting on Christ. And if those instincts aren't there, again, I come back to you, maybe we're eating junk food. Because when you're feasting on Christ, you cannot be satisfied. You cannot crave. You find no sustenance other than when Jesus is. And that is where Jesus is. Jesus is in the places where there is hunger. You know, normally, and as I was preparing this, I thought about, boy, I, I put myself in a bit of a fix here. Because normally, this would be a great place to segue into Holy Communion. But part of the reason we're fasting from the sacrament during Lent is to reflect and to better understand that the key is not the meal. It's not the elements themselves. Whether it's juice or wine. And I know some of you are just begging for wine to come back. <laughs> it's not even about how we receive this meal together. 
It's not whether we stand and you get it by intention or you kneel at the rail or whether we pass baskets down the end or we just simply have it on a table and you can come self-serve at the end. That's not what this is about. Beloved, the key, as Jesus says to his disciples, the very same disciples he's offended. So if you've been offended recently, and I'm not saying I'm Jesus, but being offended by Jesus is a regular occurrence. As Jesus' own disciples are offended, he says to them, the ones who stuck around long enough to listen, the key, the spirit gives life, Jesus says. The flesh counts for nothing. In practical terms, beloved, and this is part of why we're engaging this fast, is whatever form our Sunday service takes, the most important thing is that we're gathered in Jesus' name and that we're open to the work of his Holy Spirit. Whether we gather for a beautiful formal service with a robed choir and processions, jackets and ties, communion at the rail, or it's an informal service with lots of singing and hands raised high in the air, and we're not in the red book, the most important thing is whether Jesus is at the center of our, our worship. What matters, the only thing that matters is not the form or style of our worship, but whether we are feasting on Jesus together, whether we are touched and transformed by the very words of Jesus Christ, whether we are prepared to be changed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. And I'm here to tell you, if, that, if it's that plus something else, it's going to get in the way of the most important thing. So I ask you this morning, as we fast, are you spiritually hungry? In Christ, we see the one who gives himself for the life, for the hunger of all the world. Is Jesus what you desire this morning? Seriously, honestly, is Jesus what you desire? When we feast upon Jesus, it is his own life given to us that becomes our bread. Jesus is the bread of life, not for what he puts into our stomachs, but rather how he meets our deepest needs. How he heals us, he transforms us, how he meets us and gives us life, real life. Is that the Jesus that you know? Is Jesus a part of your diet? Just a part of your diet? Is Jesus just a snack or a meal, a quick fix that you grab when you get hungry? Are you coming here week in and week out living a different life, but when you show up on Sunday, you come to get your happy meal so you can feel better about yourself and better about your life and go on living off the junk food? Beloved, Jesus is the one who wants to feed you and sustain you and I. Are we spiritually healthy or are we living off Christian junk food? Jesus light. That's why we have this time and the space that we normally have communion. That's what we're going to invite you to do during these weeks of Lent that will not go by as slowly as you think. They're going to go by a lot faster. This space where we sing and we pray together is a time intended for us to reflect. Reflect on why we come to the table. On what this is really about. On who is this Jesus that we receive into our lives, week in, week out, day after day. So I encourage you this morning, as that space presents itself, to reflect on what it means for you to believe in Jesus, to spend time with him regularly, to involve other people in the faith that you are feasting on, the faith of Jesus Christ. I invite you to do this this morning, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of the many people right here on our doorstep in our community who are living and in some cases dying without the knowledge that Jesus is the bread of life. People who have not heard Jesus' invitation, who are, have that hole but don't know how to fill it and are filling it with all kinds of stuff and yet 
starving to death. Reflect on it for them. So that through prayer, through word and example, we can be the church, setting the table with the gifts, the food that God gives us in Jesus Christ. But it has to start with us. Beloved, we know. That's why we're here, seeking to know God, trying to satisfy the human soul apart from Christ is utterly futile. We all know that. And it's ironic what I'm about to share. Ironically, the atheist and author, John Paul Sartre, put it this way. An atheist said these words, that God does not exist, I cannot deny, but that my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. That God does not exist, I cannot deny, but that my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. We all feel that cry this morning, but we feel it in a different way. We feel it and we believe None of us would be here this morning if we didn't feel that cry and if we didn't believe that this was the place to come. This Jesus was the one to whom we could find the words of eternal life. Beloved, God has set eternity in our hearts and he has brought us together and our hearts together will be restless until they rest in Jesus, the bread of life. Amen? Amen. Amen.